I recently came across a blog written by Alice Campbell, who works at a church's central outreach and advocacy center in Atlanta, Georgia, that helps people experiencing homelessness, whom they call guests. Alice writes, a couple of months ago, I went to my mailbox and found a small package. I opened it, and inside was a starfish story, sometimes called the star thrower, and a bracelet that read, it made a difference to that one. For those who may not know, the story goes. One day, an old man was walking along a beach that was littered with thousands of starfish that had been washed ashore by the high tide. As he walked, he came upon a young boy who was eagerly throwing the starfish back into the ocean one by one. Puzzled, the man looked at the boy and asked what he was doing. Without looking up from his task, the boy simply replied, Sir, I'm saving these starfish. If I don't throw them back, they'll die. The old man chuckled aloud, Son, there are thousands of starfish and only one of you. What difference can you make? The boy picked up a starfish, gently tossed it into the water, and turned to the man, smiled and said, Sir, it made a difference to that one. I'm sure you may have heard of this story before. Alice continues, The package was sent by my mom, who lives 800 miles away. She knows that the work we do is hard. We work with guests who are marginalized and oppressed and face barriers everywhere they turn. We do our best to meet as many needs as possible, but sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. Sometimes I wonder if I really make a difference in the lives of the guests we serve. It can feel like an uphill battle with constant questions. Did I listen enough? Was I patient enough? Did I ask all the right questions to ensure the guests received everything they needed? Could I have done more? I leave every day with these thoughts, playing back my interactions with guests over and over again and thinking how I could have said something differently or done something more. Then there comes a day when I get a card in the mail that says how well a former guest is doing and thanks me for the time I spent with him or a voicemail from a guest who wants to tell me that he finally got his ID and thanks me for going through the process with him. That's when I realize that as long as our guests and their needs are my number one priority, I'm making a difference. What my mom didn't realize was that I had previously shared the starfish story at one of our team meetings because it stuck with me. It was important to share it with our team because I know that I'm not the only one who leaves work some days and wonders if I really made a difference in a guest's life. I truly believe that the work we do here is important and changes lives, and although we're not a shelter or a long-term program, and we may not see the impact our services have on our guests, I trust that our work is planting the seeds for something greater and planting the seeds of hope and empowerment within our guests. I think many of us feel something similar at times. We feel as if all the efforts we put into living Christ-like lives and being a light to the dark world isn't making a difference. We know what the Bible says, and we try to live out scriptural truths in words and actions, but it doesn't seem to make an impact. Perhaps we think our personality, our temperament, our physical appearance, our lack of resources, our talents aren't the right fit to do something great in the kingdom of God, to make a present impact, much less an eternal impact. We say to ourselves, I'm not a leader. I'm not influential. I'm not wealthy. I don't have a doctorate in any academic fields. I don't have the right education. 
I'm not of a certain ethnicity. I don't have many friends. I'm a nobody. We feel insignificant and inadequate. For many of us who may feel small and inadequate, how can we find success and greatness in this life? This is what we want to answer as we conclude our sermon series, Foolproof, A Guide to Wise Living, as we have been studying the book of Proverbs. The answer may surprise you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30 as we study verses 24 to 33. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 to 33. I read now verse 24 of Proverbs chapter 30. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. Here through the inspired observation of a man named Agur, he mentions four small animals and insects. Through observing their actions, he notes that they demonstrate a wise action which we can learn from. These animals and insects' lack of physical strength and stature is overcome by their wisdom to compensate for their deficiencies. Now let's see what these animals and insects can teach us about finding greatness even when we feel small and inadequate. Verse 25, the ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The first animal noted are ants. These insects are tiny and can be easily crushed by your fingers. But if you notice them, they're always moving around, exploring, looking for food. And when they find food, they're all working together to bring food to their ant colonies, not only to feed the other ants, but to store for the future. The principle here is that even if they're small and insignificant, they work hard in faithful preparation. And this is our first principle for finding greatness while insignificant. Biblical principle number one, work hard in faithful preparation. Work hard in faithful preparation. Here the ant is pictured preparing food in the summer when there's lots of food for a time when there isn't much. In the same way, we are to work hard in faithfulness, preparing for that day when the Lord calls us home, either at the rapture or when our earthly lives end. You know, this principle of working hard until the Lord comes and to be found faithful is echoed throughout the Scriptures. We find this in Jesus' parable of the ten virgins, a vivid reminder to be found ready when the Lord calls for us. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul near the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where he declares, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. He is declaring that he's been faithful to the Lord until the end. My friends, finding greatness in this life is not about becoming prominent and well-known by the world. It is not starting with a bang and then ending in a whimper where you are all style but no substance. Greatness in this life, according to the Bible, is found in hard work. Faithfully preparing for that day, we meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even if it means little public recognition in this earthly life, it's fine. We are faithful to that day when we will see our Lord and explain and account for our lives. You and I have heard the idiom that slow and steady wins the race, which speaks to the truth that consistency is more beneficial than something done haphazardly out of haste. This moral lesson has been told over and over in stories like Aesop's The Tortoise and the Hare. You see, greatness in life is not achieved through flashes of productivity just for show or quickly reaching the pinnacle of life and then doing nothing else with your life. It is to work hard at whatever God has called you to do in faithful preparation 
Until that time, He calls you to meet Him to be rewarded. This is actually quite hard to do, especially when we see so many people make it big, get famous, or become prominent while we languish in anonymity. But do you think the ant cares about how another ant becomes the so-called famous ant and stops working to pout in jealousy? Of course not. They just continue to work for their eventual reward. We've all heard that every member of a team is valuable, even those coming off the bench. Bench players have to go through all the practices and workouts, but may never see much game time or attention. And yet they have to be ready and prepared, as they're still part of the team. In Alan Goldberg's article, playing the bench is the hardest position on any team. He writes from the perspective of a bench player. You make all the practices regardless of how unwell you're feeling. They, on the other hand, don't show up if they have a hangnail. Most days, you're the first one at training and the last one to leave. They often come late and leave early. You never dog it or cut corners. Ask any of the coaches, and they'll tell you that they can always count on you giving everything 100%. They frequently slow down when the coach isn't looking and look for ways to avoid the hard work. You maintain a positive attitude regardless of how brutal a practice is, and they whine and moan that the practice is too hard. You consistently outwork many of your other teammates while they seem to just go through the motions. So answer a few questions for me. Why is it that the coaches consistently start these guys in front of me? How unfair is that? Why is it that when they make mistakes in games, the coaches leave them in, and the instant that I even mess up a little, I get yanked? Are the coaches that blind that they don't see my work ethic in relation to these other guys? Doesn't my commitment and attitude mean anything to them? Sure, these guys may be just a little bit better than me, sometimes not even. But all things considered, don't I deserve more than a shot that I'm being given? Whether rightly deserved or not, playing the bench is the hardest role on a team to manage. As a result, very few athletes handle it well. A role player has to work just as hard as everyone else, has to sacrifice just as much, yet he or she never seems to get any of the playing time goodies or attention. It's a discouraging and demotivating position to be in, and therefore quite easy to fall into the negativity trap where the thinking is, this stinks, and what's the point of even trying? This is just like a class where you have to work so hard in a tough subject, and no matter how hard you work, you only pull C's, while the bright kid who never does a lick of homework or any of the readings pulls A's. So what to do? You may not like your role on the team. You may not think it's fair. It may not be fair. However, your job is to try to conduct yourself as a champion. Continue to work hard. Continue to do everything in your power to get as good as possible. Continue to maintain a positive, team-first attitude. Try to play your support role to the best of your ability. You may not get a chance this season to make a difference. You may even have to wait until you play for another coach. However, don't let the coaches not playing you get to you. Just because the coach seemingly doesn't believe in you enough to give you more playing time doesn't mean that you should buy into his or her assessment of you. Keep on keeping on. Keep on working hard. Keep focused on your dream. 
most important. Stay focused on what you can control. You don't have any control over the behaviors of the others starting in front of you. They may be slots, goof-offs, or team dividers. You can't control what they do and who they are. Instead, keep your focus on you and on what you can control in the situation that you find yourself in. Stay positive. Be a good team player and play your role like a champion. This sports analogy is true to life. We think like this at times. Doesn't the world see what I'm doing? I deserve more playing time. I deserve more attention. It's not fair. My friends, work hard and control what you can control yourself. Because there will come a time when the world coach will be replaced with the true life coach, Jesus Christ. And he will see what you have done and will reward you greatly, and you will be the star. Until then, just be encouraged and do your work faithfully. Don't worry about others. Now look with me at verse 26. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The second animal noted by Agur is the rock badger, also called hyranxis or conies. They are plant-eating mammals about the size of rabbits. They're not rodents. They're described in the Bible as feeble, which is accurate, as they're small, and their feet aren't designed for digging, leaving them exposed to predators. They realize they need protection, so they live in the clefts of the rocks, which provide them protection from many of the lurking dangers. In their self-awareness that they cannot defend themselves with their own abilities, they rely on the natural fortification of the clefts or cracks in the rocks to aid them. In the same way, we have to realize that we all have deficiencies and we can't do everything ourselves. We should not be overconfident in our abilities, especially in our ability to fend off the attacks of the evil one. So just like the rock badgers wisely find protection, we must seek defensive protection from the enemies of souls. We do so by putting on the armor of God, as Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us, by being grounded in the truths of God's Word, by seeking the Lord's help in prayer, and by finding encouragement and support through a church community. This will allow us from wilting under the assault of the enemy and be able to stand tall, finding greatness in life. You see, it is those who are able to stand when others fall that defines greatness and success. So our second principle for finding greatness while insignificant is this. Biblical principle number two, seek protection to guard your weaknesses. Seek protection to guard your weaknesses. In military jargon, there's something called guarding your rear and side flanks because many charge your head thinking they're defeating their enemies only to leave their backs and sides weak and weakened and exposed to the attacks of the enemy. If they're not watching their flanks, the enemy could exploit that weakness by attacking these undefended soft points and neutralizing the advancing forces. Flanking maneuvers or hitting an opponent's soft or weak sides have played a crucial role in nearly every major battle in human history. Great military leaders like Hannibal, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Saladin, used it to great effectivity. It's also used in sports, from soccer to chess. It's used in the world of business, especially in marketing, where one company attacks another in their weak spot, commonly by paying maximum attention to either a geographic region or market segment 
in which the rival is underperforming. Mark McNeely, in discussing the second principle of Sun Tzu's The Art of War, which emphasizes the use of flanking, writes, Attacking the enemy's weak points is a much more effective and efficient use of the nation's resources. It shortens the road to victory and increases the value of the victory. Success can be accomplished in several ways. One can attack the weakest enemy troops, destroy critical war-making resources, utilize land or sea-based mobility, launch a preemptive strike, attack boundary points, or deliver a psychological attack. The key is knowing where the weaknesses are and when to release the attack. And in this regard, Satan is the master at this. He knows our lives so well, having watched us and how we've lived all of our lives. Don't think he doesn't know who our weaknesses are and when to attack. No wonder so many Christians fall because we underestimate our enemy and we don't know ourselves well enough to know who our weak, soft spots are. We as Christians have to know and admit our weaknesses. We need to shore up our weaknesses. And if we need help, to seek protection and help to guard against our weaknesses. This may require us taking the time to be grounded in God's Word or for us to take time to pray daily for the Lord's help or for us to get plugged in to a church community for support and guidance. If you're always serving but never taking the time to be spiritually filled, then you're very vulnerable to attack. Christians who overconfidently think they will never fall into sin and let their guards down will soon find that they will be attacked. They will fall into sin, and it will destroy their lives. The prey left the protection of the rock, and the predator attacked and got its prey. Again, just like the rock badger, we have to admit we have weaknesses and honestly assess our spiritual deficiencies. We must not think too highly of ourselves. We need a plan to strengthen our soft and weak spots by seeking help through accountability or finding people to spiritually journey with. This is how we can protect ourselves so that when the attacks, trials, and tests come, we have a better chance of overcoming them and not falling into sin. My friends, don't put yourself in situations where you're bound to fall. Don't put yourself in a situation where you're exposed alone and will sin. Hide under the shelter and protection of the Almighty God. Be wise like the rock badger. Remember, it is those left standing and do not fall that will eventually be identified as great. Now look with me at verse 27. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The third animal, Agar, observes that a small and seemingly insignificant, but one we can learn a great lesson from, is the locust. They seemingly don't have a leader that guides and directs them. But when they fly in a swarms, they have great order and can destroy miles of crops like an invading army. This is because every one of the locusts in the swarm has a singular goal and purpose. They don't have to be told to eat the vegetation for their self-preservation. They just do it. You see, our third principle for finding greatness while insignificant from the locusts is this, biblical principle number three have an overarching goal and singular purpose. Have an overarching goal and singular purpose. My friends, it is important that every one of us has a singular purpose in life or else we will lose focus for what we are living this life for. Without a focused goal, you and I will be discouraged when things don't turn out the way we want 
or we don't get our way. And it should be the overarching goal of each Christian to live his or her life for God's glory. It should be the singular purpose of every Christian to live his or her life to please God according to His Word. In doing so, not only do we receive God's blessings as He has so promised us in the Scriptures, we will find a reason to wake up every morning excited to live this life regardless of our circumstances. We will be able to weather the storms of life because our purpose is clear. We will be okay and satisfied with not reaching or achieving in our lifetime what the world defines as success. We will be fine and okay if we're passed up for a leadership position or for a promotion or find ourselves always second in command or on the support team because our overarching goal and singular purpose are clear. We live for God's glory so that He, not the world, is pleased with the way we live our lives. He will reward. All too often we get distracted when life doesn't happen as we so envisioned and want it causes us to lose focus on our spiritual goal and ultimate purpose as believers. And so in the process, we become disappointed, bitter, and jaded with the life God has given us. My friends, focus on the goal, purpose, and mission we have as set forth in the Bible, and we will be great. We will be just fine. Because it is on the basis of our fulfillment of God's mission that He rewards and ultimately calls us great. The secular world understands the challenges of being distracted and not being focused. Even they warn of trying to do everything for all people, resulting in ineffectivity and a lack of lasting results. In the world of business and nonprofits, it is called mission creep. As Kim Jonker and William Meehan notes in their Stanford University research, mission creep can stretch an organization so thin and so far that it can no longer effectively pursue its goals. In the private sector, it would seem preposterous for a coffee-roasting company to jump into the biotech business or to start manufacturing clothes. Yet nonprofits routinely extend their operations in equivalent ways. They expand their programs far beyond their organizational scope and far beyond their core competencies, and no one raises an eyebrow. So it is for the church so it is for the Christian. Churches try to do too much to be everything to all people, forgetting that our mission scope is defined by the Lord's great commission, and that's it. The Christian who tries to make it in this world and thus focuses all their energies into obtaining world success is not going to be a very effective Christian because they can't do what they're supposed to do as a Christ follower while at the same time focusing on getting the world's approval. The Bible is clear. No one can serve two masters. Eli Samuel notes three common side effects of mission creep. The first is that resources can be stretched too thin. He writes, Today's companies are already operating on limited resources, like staff, funding, or time. When an organization expands its programming beyond capacity, they risk diluting existing resources. In other words, organizations cannot fully support the programs that fall within scope of their intended mission. This is application for the Christian and the church. A Christian simply has no time to do the work of the Lord when they're trying to juggle both worlds. Samuels notes a second common side effect of mission creep. It is that companies are redirected from core purpose. He writes, 
every major decision an organization makes should reflect its mission or core purpose. When companies begin to make decisions that will not move them towards its desired end goal, mission creep occurs. This has application to the practical Christian life. My friends, are you redirected from your core purpose? Let me ask you a question. How many individuals have you shared the gospel with? How many people have you invested time with to show the love of Christ to? Maybe not many. Because we've been redirected to worry about what people think about us or if they'll like us or not, or we are too focused on our happiness and self-advancement to focus on our core purpose, which is to fulfill the Great Commission. Samuels notes a third common side effect of mission creep, which is that mission becomes too complex. He writes, when an organization takes on too many projects or causes, its mission can become too complex. Without clear focus and direction, stakeholders can feel misdirected and pull support from programs. How this applies to the Christian life is this. We made living the Christian life too complex, worried how the world will view us. Imagine living a simple life where we just please God with our way of living and taking at face value the truths of God's Word without having to justify or redefine everything like gender, marriage, pride, sins, and everything else the Bible speaks so clearly on. When we start to redefine and justify what God has already made so clear in the Bible to accommodate the world, we make the simple complex, and then our lives get complicated. My friends, if your mission in life is to be rich, and your mission in life is to be remembered, then you may spend all of your time and resources trying to attain something you may never achieve. The locusts have a singular purpose, an overarching goal. That's why, while small, they're able to be so effective. Imagine if all of us insignificant Christians in this church, in the third world, were singularly focused to do the work of the Great Commission. What great things we can do for the Lord. I read now verse 28. The spider skillfully grasps with his hands, and it is in kings' palaces. The fourth animal, Agar, observes that a small and seemingly insignificant, but one we can learn a great lesson from, is a spider. The small spider is able to spin an intricate web to catch its prey. While small, there is exactness and precision in its large web design as if it understands math and architecture. And seemingly insignificant, its design is such that it shows off its beautiful web designs even in the most elegant and stately of palaces of kings. But it should be noted that the Hebrew word for this animal is semamit, and is used only once in the Bible. It is also translated lizard or a gecko, which you will see in most English translations of this verse. You see, the KJV and the NKJV translators follow the Jewish targums in their translation of this word, while the other English versions translate the word using a cultural usage of this word. If the reference is to a lizard, then the idea is that even though it is something so small that it can be caught by someone's hands, in its smallness, a lizard is able to sneak into closely guarded palaces. Whether a spider or a lizard is in reference here, it doesn't change our principle. Our fourth principle for finding greatness, while insignificant, is this. Biblical principle number four. Realize our differences have a purpose. Realize our differences have a purpose. 
You see, sometimes a task can be done only if a person is not the biggest or the most physically imposing. Sometimes a task requires someone diminutive and small, just like a bodybuilder cannot be a gymnast. In the military, we find out that those in the special forces are not the biggest, most physically imposing figures, but are in fact quite average in size and physique. And the military chooses these types of people in the special forces because they are more nimble, adaptive, and can blend in. And yet often the physically small look down on themselves thinking they are not of any worth when they do in fact have great worth and purpose. Oftentimes it is the anonymous, the nameless, the unknown who make the world's economies operate. If there are no workers who do the hard work and labor under the hot sun, the world's economies would collapse. I would venture to guess that many of the richest, most influential people in the world are not able to do even the most basic of tasks because they don't know how, having been spoiled with so many personal assistants. So it is with the body of Jesus Christ. It is not the celebrity preacher nor the prolific writers and theologians that will make the most impact for the kingdom of God. It is regular men and women whom some in the church may even consider insignificant to do the most important, significant work in reaching people for Jesus Christ. A generation ago, when the great evangelist Billy Graham would preach at large arenas and stadiums, and many would come to know Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, it wasn't primarily his powerful messages that drew people to Christ. It was the thousands of volunteers who worked for months behind the scenes before he even came befriending and inviting unbelievers to the gatherings. It was the hundreds who spent hours in prayer before, during, and after the revival meetings for the work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts. It was the thousands of churches who did the follow-up work to disciple those who made decisions for Jesus Christ. Everyone knows Billy Graham, but few know the tens of thousands of insignificant people who formed the team. We don't even know their names, but heaven has recorded every one of them. Even Billy and the Graham Association would be the first to admit, without the nameless volunteers and prayer warriors, God's work through Billy would not be the same. My friends, know that you may be insignificant in the world's eyes, but you are significant in God's eyes. And the unique you that God has created is no mistake of His. He created you for a very special purpose, just the way you are. We're all wired differently. And no one is better than the other. Our unique personalities and differing talents put us perfectly in a special role to fulfill a unique purpose for the Lord. Again, one is not better than the other. We have to recognize our differences have a purpose. My friends, I don't expect you all to be like me. If everyone was like me in personality and temperament, then this church would not be what it is. It would probably be in disarray. People shine and come to significance through different approaches as God has so created them and so planned for their lives. As I was reminded in a conversation this week, diamonds are formed under pressure, and bread though rises when you let it rest. We're all our own things. What's motivating to you may be crippling to others. That means that while some are the type A personalities that shine when they're under pressure and respond well to it, other temperaments and personalities shine when you allow them to rest, ponder, and assess. Both achieve the same thing. 
to bring out the brilliance and true purpose of our lives for God's glory in order to bless others. So if you realize, my friends, that being different has a purpose, that you can view how God has made you and wired you as something special, not comparing it with others. When you find your sweet spot of ministry in this world, then you will live in that place with joy and satisfaction and earn heavenly rewards. Now look with me at verses 29 to 31. There are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk. A lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. In these three verses, Agar observes four things that are stately and noble in their walk. The lion, because of its strength. Then you have the greyhound. But this Hebrew word occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament. The literal meaning is one with loins girded, with interpretive translations ranging from the rooster to the zebra to the war horse. Whatever the animal in view, the emphasis is of a proud-looking animal. Then you have a male goat, followed by a king who has the backing of his fighting troops. Anyone with a strong army behind him would certainly be confident and walk with his head high. These stately creatures in God's creation were also made this way to fulfill a special purpose, just like he made the small animals to fulfill a special purpose. But there's a warning to these four creatures in verses 32 to 33. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and wringing the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. These verses warn against the folly of pride by being humble and against the folly of planning evil by living righteously. To put one's hand on your mouth carries the idea of being quiet and stop making trouble and being proud. And while constant anger and the forcing of issues produces problems, exhibiting humility would promote peace. You see, the emphasis of this warning for the proud-looking animals and the king with his army is to watch out for pride and keep humble. And that's our fifth principle for finding greatness while insignificant. Biblical principle number five, watch out for pride and keep humble. Watch out for pride and keep humble. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 clearly warns. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. My friends, any one of us can fall into the pitfall of pride that leads to destruction. For the most spiritual to the most secular, for the lowliest of persons to the most prominent, pride comes in many sinister forms. Eric Stillman notes, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride only gets pleasure in having more of it than the next person. Pride is in the comparison. It gives you value because we're better than someone else. You may be proud of your sense of style, your great work ethic, your political savvy, your morality, your open-mindedness, that you're not so uptight about things or that you take things seriously. You might be proud of your money, your status, your town. You can spot pride by seeing who you mock and deride. Pride causes you to constantly try to prove your self-worth by comparing. In a sermon on this subject by Pastor Tim Keller, he references an Arthur Miller play called After the Fall, where one of the characters says this, 
You know, more and more, I think that for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart you are, then what a good lover you are, later what a good husband or father you are, later how wise, how powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. What an insightful look into the human condition. Pride causes all of us to accumulate evidence that we matter, that we are important. It is as if we're trying to prove to someone that we are important, that we are worth something. But who? And will we ever do enough to prove to them that we matter? When we are reminded of God's grace in our lives and that we are called to prove ourselves only to Him, it keeps us humble. We must watch out for the pride in our lives, lest it lead us to destruction. The Bible is full of men and women who started off so well and lived life well until pride crept in and they didn't finish well. So my friends, if you're feeling small and insignificant but desire to find greatness in this life, the Bible tells us how. We are to, number one, work hard in faithful preparation. Number two, seek protection to guard our weaknesses. Number three, have an overarching goal and singular purpose. Number four, to realize our differences have a purpose. And number five, to watch out for pride and keep humble. Because at the end of the day, it is the Lord who bestows upon us greatness in this life and more importantly, in the eternal life. So we should follow His criteria for greatness. So perhaps this can be your life's theme. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save everybody. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody, Jesus, who can save everybody. We can all do this. As insignificant as we feel we may be, may we all be found great and successful in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. What a wonderful reminder that it is not the world's definition of success and greatness that we live for. It is yours. Help us to live our lives in such a way that we are great in your sight. And as insignificant as we may feel we are, we know that we are special in your sight because you uniquely created us. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for each one of us, and through your shed blood, we have eternal life. And because of that eternal life, Lord, we can live out an overarching goal and a singular purpose to glorify you with our lives, knowing it is your assessment of our life that counts. Help us to live for you. Help us to be called great in your sight, not in the world's sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.